So this morning, we're going to be continuing on in the book of Mark, and there's been three questions that we've been trying to ask in each of our different uh, messages that we've been going through. And here's our pop quiz moment. You're not getting through this year without the pop quiz that you're going to be assigned right now that has no grades. It has nothing, no matter, but for anybody that has been listening well or whatever, does anyone remember, and you can raise hands and everything, and we'll, we'll, we'll call on it. You can actually talk during the service now, so if anyone wants to, you get a chance to do that. So what are those three questions that we have been asking? Give me a show of hands. What are those three questions? What do we got? John. Who is Jesus? He took the easy one out of the way. Okay, way to take the easy answer out of the way so everyone else has to think a little bit harder. What's our other two questions? Give me a show of hands. Who has one? Who has the other two questions? Question, answer, hand right here. What's that? What did he say? What did he say? Is that one of the questions, actually? That's bad. That's not a good sign. That was not a good sign at all. What did he, we'll say, what did he say? If it's not, it's one. All right. What's our other one? Right here, Jen. What does it mean to us? That's a very good question. That's an extra credit question, not one of our three main questions. So we took the easiest answer, and we got our, our extra credit person. Um, there is no homework, by the way. I'll let everyone else know that so you don't have to ask that at the end of the class here. What do we have? Samuel. What does this say about the kingdom of God? What does this have to do with the kingdom of God? I believe the three questions are, who is Jesus? What does he say and or do? We'll go with that, right? Then what is the kingdom of God? And what does it mean to us? That's also a very good question. If, we, if there wasn't a rule of threes, that would be the fourth one is what it is. So good answer on that one. But I want to focus on what is the kingdom of God? Because the story that we're going to be going through today talks a little bit about Jesus. It mentions him maybe once. But the story we're going to go through today doesn't put Jesus as the main character. He's not the main character in this story, and that's intentional. Because we're going to be asking, we're going to be specifically looking at the kingdom of God this morning. But we're going to be looking at it by figuring out the opposite of it. Sometimes we can only know things, not by what they are, but what they aren't. Have you ever determined that? You're like, I don't know exactly what that thing may be, but I definitely know it's not this. You know what I'm talking about? We're going to be emphasizing our study this morning, and we're going to be asking a question, not what is the kingdom of God like, but we're going to be asking the question, what is the kingdom of man like. We're going to be flipping it. What is the kingdom of man like, and what does that say to us about its opposite, which is the kingdom of God? That's where our passage is going to. But I think a, a good thing to do right now is to give a definition of what exactly do we mean when we say the kingdom of man? Because as, as many people in this room had as many different ideas flood your mind when I mentioned the kingdom of of man. Maybe you thought of a specific person. Maybe you thought of a specific country or uh, following. Maybe you thought of a different, a specific belief or a lack thereof. You may have had a couple of different things come to your mind. What are we, what are we going to hone in on here when we're talking about the kingdom of man? Well, I have a Preston definition. This is not a professional definition. This is my definition I came up with. So this is what I mean when I'm talking about the kingdom of man. I mean this. Humanity trying in its own strength to live well in this world. That's our definition we're going by. Let me repeat it again. By the kingdom of man, we mean humanity trying in its own strength to live well in this world. That's our definition we're going off of today. Because what that does is many times when we come up with ideas of the kingdom of man or we talk about man or we talk about flesh or we talk about the world or whatever, we, what we do is we kind of put ourselves in this little spiritual box and say, that's everybody out there. 
we, we almost, we, we pull ourselves away from that as Christians. And what I want us to recognize, as much as we don't want to admit it, by that definition, the kingdom of man is in this room. The kingdom of man is inside of each and every one of us. Trying in our own strength to live in this world. We can all think of several occasions that we have tried to live in this world well in our own strength. And what I want us to do is I don't want us to project out. I want this to be a way for you to look at your own heart and soul and the ways that the kingdom of man is reflected in your own life. And I want us to ask the question, what does that offer to us? What do we gain by following this kingdom of man inside of all of us? That's going to be our goal in our study for this morning. We're going to find that in the book of Mark. So open your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 6. Our passage this morning is chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Mark, chapter 6, 14 through 29. I think what I'm going to go ahead and do is I'm going to read the passage in its entirety. After we read it, we'll figure out very quickly what what's this passage has to tell us, what this passage is. It's a fairly familiar one. Then we're going to spend a little bit of prayer time over it, and then... We're going to pick it apart and see what the Lord has for us this morning. So Mark chapter 6, excuse me, verses 14 through 29 says this. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask from me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I, for what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Would you please join me in prayer? Gracious Father, we come to you today after reading your word, and Lord, we are confronted with a very visceral story. Just as we read it, we feel Perhaps we feel gross on the inside. Perhaps we feel shocked. Whatever that, that feeling is, Lord, it's a challenge to us because maybe there's, maybe there's some of us in this room that would rather wish we, we moved past this passage. We didn't study it. We didn't look into it. It's, it's disturbing. 
And yet, Lord, it is in your word. It is presented to us. And if it is in your word, it comes from your mouth. It comes from your spirit who inspired Mark to write these words of the account of the life of Jesus, which includes this passage. And so, Lord, humble us as we begin this study. Lord, may we do everything in our power to use this, this passage to, to look inside of ourselves and see ways that we ourselves struggle as we serve this, this kingdom of man. As we all seek to, to live in this world, Lord, work in our lives. Help us, Lord, in this great conflict we have as believers of choosing between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. Be with us in this study, Lord. Give me wisdom beyond my years or understanding. Give me the ability to communicate in a way that honors you and pleases you and is um, able to be grasped and understood. But Lord, above any of that, Lord, I pray that your spirit would go before me and, and use these words to, to penetrate our hearts. Would you do the work of, of showing us what you have in store for us today? Lord, I thank you for who you are. Thank you for the love you show us. Thank you for the forgiveness you offer us. And I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this passage picks up right in the, it's, 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 it's kind of like a big block that falls into the middle of the story of Mark. It seems out of place. It seems foreign to what we have been studying so far. It's almost like it, it, it plops down and we go, oh, right, John the Baptist was a character in the book of Mark, and he's a fairly important one. We know John the Baptist, we talked about him in chapter 1 of Mark, and we, we talked about his, his preparing the way for the Messiah that would come to save his people. We talked well about that, and then we, he, he kind of fell off the beaten path. We, we've been following Jesus through his various healings and, and ministries and the things that he's done and the great, crazy miracles that have been happening. And, and right before this passage, Jesus has just sent out the twelve in pairs of two to go do ministry in the surrounding region. And, and it, it seems very much to just completely interrupt that passage. Why did Mark do that? What is the point of that? The point of that is this. Mark is trying to form a parallel picture. Mark is trying to compare and contrast what Jesus was doing as he was sending out the 12 to communicate the kingdom of God coming near and to show what that kingdom of God is up against, namely the kingdom of man. So far in this story, we, we can tell by the very beginning parts of it that, that Jesus' disciples and word about him was beginning to spread, and it was spreading incredibly, so much so that it wasn't just common folk rumors, so much so that it wasn't just people who were sitting around at dinner table talking about the crazy guy outside that's healing people. And talking about this kingdom of God. We can tell that these rumors have circulated so far that they've even reached so many people that have come up with several different ideas of who this Jesus guy is. What's his deal? What's he doing? Who is he? One of our questions, right? And everybody has their own opinion. Not very different from today, right? Several people have different ideas of who this Jesus guy just might be. Some suggest he is John the Baptist that's been raised from the dead. Whoa, we didn't know that John the Baptist died. That's the first time we hear about that, Mark. Wait, he died? Oh, didn't hear about that one. When did that happen? Again, this is thrown into the middle of our story in a really fascinating way. Others say different things. Some said that he was Elijah, one of the prophets that was supposed to come to help bring in the inauguration of the coming Messiah. The Old Testament prophesied that Elijah would come or, or make a, a return to earth before the Messiah would come. Some are saying, well, maybe this dude who's doing the miracles is Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. 
Others were saying, well, he's probably not Elijah, but maybe he's one of the other prophets. Maybe he's Isaiah. Maybe he's Jeremiah. Maybe he's Habakkuk or Malachi or whatever. Maybe he's one of these other prophets of old. Maybe the prophetic ministry has has been reopened after 400 years of silence between Malachi and this present time. There's a lot of different rumors floating, and it's, it's, it, it's a lot of different, uh, you, you can almost, I, I gained the picture, because I went to uh, a Bible college, I gained the picture of, I remember in Bible college, people sitting down in, in a lounge at like 10 p.m. with way too much coffee or sugar on them and arguing about various theological topics and kind of battering each other and talking to each other and sometimes yelling at each other. It was intense sometimes, but that's kind of the picture that I get is these people arguing over over nuances and ideas and whatever, and and at the end of the the discussion, nobody has an answer. Nobody solved the problem, and you're like, well, what was the point of all that? But then we're introduced to a new character. This character has never, has not been in the book of Mark up till this point, and that is King Herod. Now, the title is confusing on two accounts. First off, it's confusing because there's a lot of different people in the Bible named Herod. There's quite a few Herods out there, and we'll learn about those those guys here in a little bit. But this guy's name officially was Herod Antipas. Antipas. If you want to sound smart or if you want your child to sound smart, name them Antipas. I think that's a really cool name. I don't think it'd fly for some, but Antipas. That's, that's, That's the character, that's the main character here, Herod Antipas. The second reason that that title is confusing is because it calls him King Herod. King Herod was not his official title back in the day. And we don't just know this from the Bible. We know this from other accounts. There are Roman documents that have been brought down through the centuries that, we've, that archaeologists and classicists have uncovered that know about the Herods, that wrote letters to them. These were real-life people in a real-life place that were not just talked about in the Bible. But one thing we do know about this Herod is that he wasn't a king. In fact, it wasn't until after the ascension of Jesus, I think around 39 AD, so a few years after Jesus ascended, the church was beginning to function, this Herod Antipas actually wrote a letter to the emperor of Rome. This is a fun little history blurb for you. He wrote a letter to Rome, to the Roman emperor, and said, hey, how about you make me king of Judea? And the Roman emperor responded back, no, I'm not going to do that. And in fact, I'm so mad at you, I'm going to exile you in the worst place ever, France. (laughs) Or at that time, it was named Gaul. It 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 was not a very well maintained part of the Roman Empire at the time, but he never was a king. And in fact, he tried to become a king, and that's what made him lose all of his power. And this happened several decades after, or actually this would have happened within the last decade, a decade after this was, or this part of the story happened in real life history. When Mark wrote it, it would have been past history. So those are two different things we know about this Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is his name, and he wasn't really a king. Mark may have written and called him king due to local customs, or he was kind of making fun of him. I like to think he was making fun of him. Just me, though. So Herod Antipas here, he's heard some of these rumors of this dude named Jesus sending out all of his followers, and they're going out, they're exercising demons, they're doing miracles, they're doing all this stuff, and people are talking about it, and it's becoming a bit of a, of a, of a, of a, uh, a, a, rumor that has been circulated to the point that the royal court has gotten it, and he has his own opinion. Look at what his own opinion is, and hear hear the dread in what he says. It's in verse 16. It says, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised do you hear the dread? Like the, the child who, who made a mistake and the mom says, wait till your father gets home and he will talk to you about it. Do you hear that, that dread in him? As he's like, oh no, it's coming back to bite me. That guy who I beheaded, again, this is the first time we're hearing about this. Wait, you cut the guy's head off? Ugh. He's come back from the dead. 
Herod Antipas here is having a very human emotion, a very human reaction to past wrongs. And this is one of the first things that the kingdom of man offers us. The kingdom of man, your first point, and kids, this is on your kids' sheet. The kingdom of man offers us shame. Shame. Shame is one of those very fluid and mysterious words. We all have an idea of it. We all have a feeling that comes up. We all have a memory that's triggered when we think of shame. Well, let's try to find a way to nail that down. Many times, shame and guilt are used very interchangeably. These are two different words. And I think understanding the two different words will help us understand what shame really is. Guilt is something, I have the, I actually have it here for you. Where is this? Guilt is is something, is a feeling that something you did was wrong. You know, I I went and I did something wrong. I know it was wrong. I feel guilty about that. I stayed out past my bedtime, whatever it may be. I don't know. I feel guilty for my actions. Shame takes it a step further and says, it's not just what I do that's wrong, but it's that I am wrong. And I have no ability to change. It's a powerful, dreadful emotion. But it's one we feel all the time. It's one that haunts our brains. And it's one that I think many of believers, many Christians struggle with in particular. Many, especially many who've grown up in the church. Many who've grown up in the church have been told all their life what is right and wrong. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. And many of us who've been Christians for a very long time have been told what to do and what not to do. And yet when we continually finding ourselves choosing to do things that we know we are not, not supposed to do, and if we do that so many times, we can sometimes give ourselves the label of saying, I can't be changed. This sin is too great. This is, this problem, this battle, it's too hard. This fight, it's not worth fighting anymore. When I think of different things that are affecting the church in such a negative way, I think one of the things, one of the top basic things is you and I being overburdened by our shame. It's us saying, I just need to do better. I just need to try harder. I just need to, need to power through it. And that, that, that never seems to work because it always comes back and bites me. It's exhausting. It's frustrating. It takes all the wind out of your, your, the sails of our Christian walk, our relationship with God. And note what I say here, that this is not something the kingdom of God offers us. This is something the kingdom of man offers us. Shame is one of the best weapons in the tool belt of the enemy. It's one of the most effective weapons in the tool belt of the enemy, of our adversary, the devil. It can swallow you for a lifetime. But again, we look back to our definition of the kingdom of man, humanity trying in its own strength to live in this world well. And we, our reaction to shame is just to try harder. Doesn't that sound like us trying to live by our own strength in this world as well as we can? Do those not match up? The kingdom of God offers us something completely different. Where the kingdom of man offers us shame the kingdom of God offers us freedom. Well, the kingdom of man imprisons us and holds us down by all of our past mistakes, the kingdom of God pulls the mistakes off of our shoulders and puts it onto the cross, puts it on to this Messiah, this Jesus that has taken your shame and has borne it himself. We have freedom. We have the opportunity to say, I am not determined by my past mistakes. They have been nailed to the cross. Do not choose shame, my friends. Choose freedom.
the story continues, and from here we get the beginning of this account. Now, many in, who, who talk about the book of Mark talk about there being two different what are called passion narratives. A passion narrative, you might have heard of the passion of the Christ, the movie, right? What is the passion of the Christ about? It's about Jesus being arrested, convicted, crucified, and, and killed, right? Many will say there's a second passion narrative, and that is this narrative that we are going through right now. This is the beginning of the account of the passion of John the Baptist, the death of John the Baptist. And we learn a little bit more about this Herod Antipas, who is leading this, this section of the province of Judea. And it says this in verse 18 through 20. Please read along with me. No, sorry, verse 17 through 20, my bad. It says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So the beginning, we figure out eventually that at some point, John the Baptist gets arrested, gets arrested by Herod Antipas on the account of Herodias, who is his brother's wife. There's, there's, we're about to jump into what is the Herod family tree. It's a really disturbing family tree. This is only a section of it. These are the people that are important to this story. The rest of it, it's wild. If any of you know what Game of Thrones is, it's the same kind of vibe. If you don't know what Game of Thrones is, don't even worry about it. Not worth your time. But this, is the, but this up here is the Herod family tree. I'm going to walk actually to the side here, and we're going to look at it. So we have at the top a guy named Herod the Great. Herod the Great was, the great was his official term. I put in brackets, Herod, the not-so-great. Herod was not a great dude. He was really good at running a province. He was really good at administrating and collecting taxes and building projects. He built incredible structures in this time in the province of Judea. He eventually built and redesigned the second temple, but it became Herod's temple. I think that was one of the titles for it. Herod, not a good dude. He was also the guy that decided to, when the wise men came to him and said that this king of the Jews was born in Bethlehem, he decided to go and kill all of the babies in Bethlehem. Not a good dude. There's many more stories. If you want to hear about them, I'll tell you afterwards. Not pertinent to our study. But Herod the not-so-great, he had several different children. We are going to talk about three. We have Herod Antipas over here on the left. He's the main character of this story. Herod Philip in the middle, his brother, and another guy who's not in this story named Herod Arist Aristobulus. Aristobulus. If you ever have a Bible name you don't understand, say it quickly and confidently. Say it quickly and confidently. Herod Aristobulus. So, Herod Aristobulus had a daughter named Herodias. Herodias was married to Herod Philip. If you notice the family tree, Herod, the Phil Herod Philip married his brother's daughter, that being his niece. Ew. Not, ew. Anybody looks at that and goes, not okay, right? Herod Philip and Herodias are married. They decide to go on a weekend camping trip with Herod Antipas, and Herod Antipas talks to Herodias and tells her, hey, you should divorce my brother, and you should be married to me instead because I can give you more power, more influence. I'm going to be king of Judea one day. He had this whole thing about him. Herodias agreed. So Herodias divorced her husband and uncle, Herod Philip, and married her other uncle, Herod Antipas. Are you grossed out yet? That's the point. There's, that's the, that's, the, that's the, the visceral, like the, the, the gross part of the story that makes many of us, I was studying this and I saw that I had this a few weeks ahead of time and I was like, I don't want to teach on this. And the best consolation and good news I have for you is that either we're, well, first we're going to continue to study and also we almost did this on Christmas. So this is really the better option. 
in our opinion. So these are the characters we're introduced to right now. Salome we'll talk about a little bit later. So that is the family tree and the family drama going on in the Herodian dynasty, okay? That is what we have to deal with. So Herod Antipas arrested John the Baptist on the account of his new wife, Herodias. John the Baptist was not talking well of this marital decision. Who would have thought? John the Baptist was saying that the leaders of this part of the Roman Empire were in sin. He was calling out their sin of incestuous marriage. As a result, the Jewish peoples were always a fairly rebellious people. Think of the Maccabees and Hanukkah, right? They were a rebellious people. Herod's kind of freaked out that the people are going to rise up against him because he committed a sin against them and against God. And so he decided to arrest John the Baptist for political reasons, right? Now Herodias wants John the Baptist killed. But Antipas says no. This is one of the really fascinating parts of this story. Herod Antipas has a very dynamic and interesting relationship with John the Baptist. So John the Baptist and Herod have a, have a fascinating connection, and you can read about it in verse 20. It says this. It says, For Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, but he heard him gladly. Isn't that a fascinating way to interaction and relationship with somebody? You're, you're afraid of this guy. You're afraid of him because he's a holy and righteous man. You can identify. You're like, that's a good dude. I don't want to mess with him. And so you hear him, and you're confused by what he's telling you, and you're, but you're also at the same time really into what he's telling you. There's something about it that's, that's almost drawing you to it that you can't turn away from. The passage doesn't say this, but I wonder if Herod went and talked with John the Baptist on several occasions. Now, John the Baptist was more than likely in prison, not in the place that Herod Antipas was, was king, so he would have had to travel. Geography. And he, he would have sat in and I imagine them talking, just, just interacting, you know, with a, with a cell bar or whatever the prison looked like in between them. And Herod is, is he's hearing him. He's, he's maybe feeling some of that guilt over the, some of the things he's done, maybe some of that shame over some of the things that he's done, but he loves what he's hearing. I wonder, I really wonder, and we don't know this. The passage doesn't tell us this, so we can't say this is how it is. But I wonder if John the Baptist was trying to evangelize to him. I wonder if he's trying to tell him about this Messiah, tell him about this Jesus, tell him about the answer to all of his problems. If any of us have been involved in sharing our faith with maybe friends or family or coworkers or whatever, I've, I've found more often than not just a, a, a fascination when, with, uh, that people have when I talk to them about Jesus. When I was in college, I was able to um, take part in something called gospel outreach in college, where every Monday night we would go out to Millennium Park in Chicago, run into strangers, and talk to them about Jesus. It was as horrifying and terrifying as it sounds, but it was fascinating. I never had one person scream at me and tell me to get out of there. I had a few people that respectfully declined, but I had more often than not people sitting and saying, wait, tell me, what, so what is this Christianity? Like, what do you believe? Why do you believe it? There was a fascinating pull in it. And I wonder if that's what Antipas is feeling right now. I don't know. We can't say for sure, but there's, that's, there's a feeling that I have there that I'm like, maybe that's something that's going on. Maybe there's something that John the Baptist is seeing that we aren't seeing. It's just an interesting idea, but I think it matches up with how outreach works and what's happening in the story. But what we get with this is we get an incredible realization at the very visceral, very open, just sort of family brokenness that is there 
in this kingdom of man. Many of us, I think, I hope all of us, have celebrated Christmas over this last week. What sort of family brokenness have you encountered over this last week? What sort of marital strife and challenges have you come face to face with over this last week? Maybe not to the degree that is in the Herodian family. But we all, I think, can point to family brokenness that this kingdom of man offers us. God, in his desire for all of creation, is to bring everything back together in unity and in love. The kingdom of man wants nothing but to tear apart tear apart relationships, tear apart families, tear apart marriages. Again, going back to the kingdom of God. Humanity trying in its own strength to live well. There's many people who have said the best decision I can, the best outcome I can have in this situation is to cut ties with family. And that's a complicated conversation because there can be several issues with that related to abuse and other things, right? So we've got to be careful with that. But all of these are just examples of brokenness in this world and brokenness that you and I interact with and feel so often. And there's a personal part of that. My encouragement for you is that if you know of some of that brokenness in your own family or with others around you that you know that you're a part of, Choose the kingdom of God and have that hard conversation. Choose the kingdom of God and reunite that relationship. If it is possible, live peaceably among all so far as it depends upon you, right? That's Romans chapter 12. We've got to be careful there, right? But the kingdom of God's ultimate end destiny is the bringing together of all peoples under King Jesus in the new heaven and the new earth in perfect peace and harmony. My prayer is we choose that and not this kingdom of man which promises us brokenness in so many different ways. The next part of the passage is what ended up happening to John the Baptist. We've been getting a lot of setup as to what is the situation that's surrounding the death of John the Baptist. Verses 21 through 29, it's one big section, at least in the ESV Bible. And it's one that as you read, you can't help but, again, struggle with and just mourn over. I'll read it one more time to you. It says this, verse 21 through 29, it says this, But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What should I ask? Her mother replied, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So now the picture jumps to a specific moment, the birthday of Herod Antipas. And he decides, as you would at a birthday celebration, to invite your buddies over and to hang out. To hang out and to celebrate, right? That's a fairly normal thing to do. From what we can understand about how parties and festivals would have happened in Greco-Roman times is that there would have been incredible amounts of very strong alcohol at this party. More than likely. We don't know for sure, but generally speaking, that's how it, it was. That's just kind of what they did. There would have been a lot of drinking, 
people probably would have been getting drunk. People probably would have been going above the legal limit, which I don't know if they could have breathalyzed at the time, but they were not in the ability to drive more than likely, right? These parties would have lasted many times for days in, in, in rampant celebration. And we get a new character introduced into this party. We get Herod Antipas with all of his military commanders, all of the people that help him run the place. And then we get the daughter of Herodias. Go back to the family tree. The daughter's name, not found in the Bible, but found in extra-biblical sources, namely the Antiquities uh, by Josephus, if anyone's interested in reading that. Very fascinating. The daughter's name was Salome. We just take a step further and look at the family tree, and you can see the continuous family relationships that are at play here. So Salome, at some point, decides to go into the party, probably was pre-planned by her mother or whatever else, and decides to dance before the men that were there. Notice it says that there were men there. There were no women at this party. More than likely, this dance would have been a promiscuous dance, a sexual dance. We don't know how that works or whatever else, but more than likely would have been of that nature. And again, we see this family tree where this isn't just Herod's stepdaughter, but it's also his great niece. Just sit in that for a moment. I think many times Christians like to say that we're in a time of such open sexuality that's never happened before. And when I want to combat that very strongly, there is nothing new under the sun. For anybody who knows anything about Greco-Roman history, it was a very promiscuous culture. It was a very open culture. It is not anything new. And God's people have been through all of it. We are not in a new playing field. We really aren't. I feel that point is necessary to make. We are not that special. Sorry. But Antipas is pleased by this dance, and he makes a snap decision, probably under the influence of alcohol, and he tells, he offers, he makes an oath in front of everybody around him. When you make an oath in this time, it is binding words. It might have been similar to writing a contract. Now, the irony in this is he offers up to half his kingdom. Herod Antipas had no ability to give any of his authority to anybody else. This was a rash gut decision that he would have known in his sober mind. He couldn't do that. The only people that could give up authority or give authority was the Romans who were overseeing this province in the empire of Judea. So he makes a promise he can't even fulfill. He couldn't, if she even said, I want half your kingdom, he couldn't give that to her. Not a very great king, right? Salome understands the offer goes back to her mother. The plane goes out. He comes back and asks, I imagine in a big party situation, music playing, whatever, she asks for the head of a holy and righteous man, John the Baptist. And I imagine at that point the Greco-Roman record player screeching to a halt. Right? Antipas has backed himself into a corner. He's made enough poor decisions up to this point that there is no getting out of this. Either would have, he either is killing a holy and righteous man and causing more issues in his kingdom or breaking an oath in front of everybody that is supposed to respect his authority. If he breaks his oath, he loses that authority and respect and more than likely would lose his crown. So in an effort to preserve the limited power he felt that he had, he made the decision to murder an innocent man. Do you see connections between this story and the passion of Jesus Christ? You see a holy and righteous man sent by God with a po an important mission. And he was despised by these people. These weren't his own people, but he was despised by these people. And he was killed at the hands of oppression and injustice. 
He didn't deserve this punishment. This was a punishment that was deservant of Herod, not him. He didn't do anything wrong. He's obedient to God. His obedience didn't bring him prosperity. It didn't bring him riches. It didn't bring him a a better family. It didn't bring him better finances. It didn't bring him any sort of blessing in this world. The only blessing it provided him was an escape from this world into the hands of God. It cost him his life to follow God, quite literally. Something tells me that the original audience of this book, we keep having to remember that Mark is writing an account more than likely to Christians being persecuted in the city of Rome or Roman Christians who were being persecuted and arrested and tried unjustly and murdered for their faith, sent into the Colosseum at the hands of the gladiators and the wild beasts. They would have seen this passage and felt a connection between this John the Baptist who is a a, a perfect character representation for them to look to, say, this is the destiny of your fate, possibly. You could even be tested with to the point of death. I will say, that's a very foreign struggle that you and I don't have. Christians talk so quickly in a victim mentality, and I call it that, and I don't call it persecution. I don't call that persecution. That's a victim mentality of saying, oh, woe is me, the world is against me. And we fight so hard for trivial things, non-eternal things. What's the cost of non-eternal things? But this is the place that John the Baptist is in. This is the place that our spiritual ancestors are in. This is the place that our brothers and sisters around the world and other places are in. We have our own struggles, yes. This is a foreign one to us. John the Baptist, forced in this decision, decides to go and kill John the Baptist. Or Herod decides to go kill John the Baptist. So many names in this story. There's a lot of different people in this story. Presents it back to Herodias in a twisted, again, medieval Game of Thrones kind of vibe. Just feels gross. Feels like a horror movie. Just imagining that. John's followers eventually are made aware for one reason or another, and they decide to give what little honor they can that is left to John the Baptist. We see so many overtones of the ministry of Jesus, of the ministry of the Old Testament prophets, of the ways that God used his people to bring about salvation in this world. But if we look at this, we see that the kingdom of man already has offered us shame, Already, the kingdom of man offers us brokenness. Here, we see the kingdom of man offering pain. And not pain in the way that's, that may be a little bit difficult to think because I was just talking about the pain that Christians have gone through in the past. I may have, I've been talking about that sort of thing, so I'm recognizing that literally right now that maybe that's not the best word. Maybe unjust pain, maybe unfair pain. That might be a better way to describe that. That's my bad, but... What we see in this is that living on our own, trying to protect ourselves, trying to restore or maintain our own power and authority and honor just leads to this pain, pain for ourselves and pain for others. How many people over the course of human history in an effort to preserve their own authority that ultimately is God's have led to the death of sometimes thousands and millions of people. Christian leaders and non-Christian leaders, right? That is what the kingdom of man offers you and me. A poor attempt at a shadow of control that leads only to death. 
The kingdom of man seems good, but it never satisfies. Our efforts to live in this world on our own strength, those constant, those so many times we choose to try to do that by ourselves, they never satisfy, do they? And we are aware of that. We feel that. That goes back to the shame, right? But here we see the extreme parallel between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God came in humility. It came in the form of a baby. We celebrated that a week ago. And we sang about that this morning. The kingdom of God brings peace and and invades this kingdom of man's territory with the power of love, hope, forgiveness, and peace. With a power that is greater than anything in this world. And it's a power that is offered to you and me every single day. Either to believe in Jesus as our Savior for the first time. Or to constantly be in prayer and asking God and seeking out God. Not just out of obligation. Not just out of what we're supposed to do. But because he is everything we need. So many times we follow God in an obligation, not because we can't live without him. Isn't that true? In closing here, what this passage does for us is it removes the polished veneer of what this kingdom of man offers us. You read this and you say, that doesn't sound very good, and yet we still choose it so many times. We wish to distance ourselves from it and say, no, I follow Jesus, yes, and we fall short every single day. We are constantly in need of grace. We are constantly in need of correction and accountability and submission to God's plan over ours. My question for you as we close is which are you choosing? This kingdom of man that seems good, but when it's the veneer's thrown away, we get a we get a snapshot view of the of this hideous, gross reality of it? Or are we side by side the disciples who are out proclaiming the kingdom of God? following God's will, seeing amazing miracles and power as God works through us. I hope the choice seems obvious. I pray that it would remain obvious as we walk through this week and we look towards this next year.